0: Well, welcome to another episode of the Gary Anderson F1 show. While Gary Anderson is on holiday this week, he is still here. He's uh, This is why he sounds a little bit more distant, but he's he appears to be sat in a field somewhere by uh, a tree. Uh, I'm Ed Straw as always, and uh, apologies for gate-crushing your, uh, your holiday, Gary.
1: No, no problem at all. Yes, I'm sitting well, a sit, sort of a field by a river and by my motorhome. We went off down to Wales for a long weekend, so it's uh, been quite nice. Yes, sunshine, and so... There's no time like the present to catch up with uh, Formula
0: One, is there? Absolutely, and uh, it's probably quite a good time to get away, given we've had nine races in eleven weekends. That one's been uh, been pretty hard work. Uh, we've got various reader questions, as always, which we'll, we'll get into a little bit uh, shortly. But I did want to talk about something you've been writing about, and it's a topic you've talked about a fair bit, which is the the low noses and the kind of accident where you get one car into the the rear of another. We did see something like that at uh, at Mugello, so. I think this is an area that nobody's really, really picked up on other than yourself uh, about this crash. So what, why are you uh, so worked up about that?
1: Well, you know, it has the regulations. There's a, there's a structure at the front of the nose and there's a certain height and position for it. And that's why all the noses are are where they are. It's defined by the FIA. But, you know, we, we had, um, whenever we looked at, the, at Mugello, we looked at the ugly cars through through the uh, mid-2010-12 2000, type area where the noses got really, really high. And that was uh, the, the regulation was created to try and stop cars from climbing over the top of each other and, and going over the over the cr- the crash barrier really. Which is a good thing, you know, I have to say, but sometimes you can just go over the top bit. And um I think that in this instance I've never liked the low nose because, you know, the car will submarine underneath another car. More chance from behind because the actual rear crash structure is higher than the nose height. So if, if you do hit a car square on the back of it, you will go underneath it. If you do hit it, you know, the wheel or something, you'll go underneath the wheel if the, if the other car is stationary. If the car you hit has actually got a rotating tyre at the time, there's a chance it will pick it up and, and take you over the top or or do nothing. But the chances of those things happening, you know, if you can see a car ahead of you that's moving, you're not going to, very, very seldom, you're going to drive into the back of it just straight up. It's, it's on the grid when a car stalls or has a problem at the start, something goes wrong and you're coming from the back of the grid and you're flat out. You're doing you know, 100, 100 mile an hour by the time you get to a stationary car. That's the time you've got to worry about it. So I just think that the little nose has gone too far. Um, it's a good thing, but it's gone too far. and I, I don't understand why the rear crash structure, the nose crash structure shouldn't all be at the same height. Basically, when we see the rear light flashing on the on the cars, that's the rear, That's the back of the rear crash structure. That's the area you have to have there. So it's not a big area, but there's no reason why the nose shouldn't be at that same height. Um, so that if you do hit the back of the car, there is a chance you will hit that crash structure the same. And also on the side of the chassis, you know, you don't want to be going underneath um, the side of a chassis, which can happen. I mean, the car itself um, has got ground clearance and whatever. So the, there is a good chance that, you know, a T a T t-bone situation you would go underneath the chassis and also underneath the conveyor belt and the tires it, it just picks things up like a snow plow for 2022 there's a you know a chance to rectify a situation that was maybe overreacted to slightly uh in previous regulation changes
0: yeah it's the, it's a downside when you're making these safety changes there's no kind of absolute safety is there anything you anything you do can create other problems so it's a question of where the balance is. As I understand it the FIA does like the idea of containment in accidents so for example it's a little bit more safe not to have cars flying around in terms of marshals and and even the crowds but obviously yeah you can have some some pretty serious accidents with the uh with the the rear crash structure so that's a that's a an interesting one for them to look at I'm sure they'll have a a good look at it because fortunately we don't see that too often but obviously Carlos Sainz was the one who uh who had the impact so uh i mean how do you see that trade-off of, of not wanting things launched versus the uh, the safety for the drivers is it sensible to bias it a little more towards the competitor in terms of risk than by standards shall we say
1: you have to i think you have to um put the risk a little bit more towards the competitor they know they know why they're doing it and what they're doing it for whereas marshals on the side of the track respect spectators, no you should not, you shouldn't put them at risk if you can, you know, avoid it in any possible way. But I, yeah, I just think that the trade-off of the low nose is a little bit more than it needs to be. It doesn't have to be different, that much different. But you know, we do see that structure of the chassis has got these droopy noses as well. So that everybody wants to get the front bulkhead as high as possible, high as the regulations allow, which is why the cars up to the sort of front wheel are as high as they are up to the front of the center, the center of the front wheel are as high as possible from the regulations, and then the nose has to drip down to that point. And, you know, structurally and aesthetically, that isn't a nice thing to do. You know, that isn't the easiest solution, to be honest, for to um, contain a, a, an empire. So at the end of the day, you could, you know, as I say, the compromise is just, in my book, has just gone a little bit too far. Yes, of course you want to stop cars from flying over the top of each other. But, you know, we went from stupidly high noses to stupidly low noses. There is some. Or happy medium in the middle and, and as I keep saying the the axle center line seems to be a good place for me because if you 're going to hit the rear the rear wheel of a car or hit any part of the car the the strongest area is for the axle put the, is for the wheel put to load into the axle, so if you 're going to hit a rear suspension of a car, it would be very good to to just hit that point and, and you 'll have most energy absorbed while you 're taking bits off the other car that you 're hitting because that 's what that's what happens as the parts break that 's um that's how you absorb the energy. So, uh, I, I, you know, I'd like to see a review because the I, I, last thing I'd like to see is a, is a car, um, another crash box, let's say, if a car goes inside the, uh, the, the halo openings because that's what could happen very, very easily. Um, you know, the halo is there to protect the driver for sure. So the protection for the drivers and, uh, as such right now is is, is pretty good. Um, so but still, there's always room for review, I believe.
0: Well, as always, we've got plenty of uh, listener questions that have come through to your Twitter account at GaryAndersonF1. There's another one on rules, and it's another thing that you briefly complained about for Magello, which is DRS. Joe Davis says, is it true they're not getting rid of DRS for 2022? And yes, it is true that the DRS is still in the rules and he asks if not why not the cars are supposed to be much better designed for for good racing it's obvious that 10 years on they still haven't got drs right and we're seeing predictable moves that are completed before the braking zone and, it, and he's finished that question with a big thumbs down so i think you'll like that one
1: yeah i have a big thumbs down for it as well you know i i, I loved to see those those moves those taken moves around um turn one that albon did and i think ricardo did but you know, there's there's various moves went on there that were actually racing moves around the corner. Okay, they might have been made potentially possible because of the DRS down the straight, but they happened in the corner, you had to have the different line. And that's typical of a race track. It's got a little bit of camber in the road there. So, you know, that that reacts to you. You can go a bit wider and the, probably the car speed is just about the same around the corner. So if you're up for it and want to have a go at passing somebody, that's the sort of circle. As I like to see it happening. But, but manoeuvres down the straight, where you, you know, the overtaking manoeuvres finish before the straight's finished, that's completely wrong in my book, you know. Yes, we want to be able to see people that have got stuck behind for some reason being able to pass, but you know, for me, DRS is completely against the whole philosophy of Formula 1. It's about racing drivers doing a job and having your hero drive the car. And I think DRS just allows them to not be complete racing drivers. Um, you know, whenever you look at Mugello, the drivers that did those overtaking manoeuvres around the outside, talked about them on TV. They, they That's, that's the highlight of the race, to be honest. That's what they want to be doing as well. They don't want to be passing people down the street just by putting the indicator out and you know, pulling out and passing. So I hope for 2022 that the regulations do allow the cars to race a lot better and that DRS can be at least diminished if not completely done away with.
0: Yeah, I think that would be the uh, intention. Uh, inevitably, there's quite a few questions about the big driver announcement ahead of the Mugello weekend that Sebastian Vettel was going to Racing Points, Aston Martin in place of Sergio Perez. Various questions at Tain Dog uh, uh, for whether they've made a big mistake in, uh, in signing Vettel. And yeah, like I said, several, uh, several listeners uh, throwing in questions about that. So what do you make of the, the decision both to sign Vettel and to replace Perez?
1: You know, obviously, Lance Stroll is the son of Lawrence Stroll. So, he, you know, in theory, he's going to stay there. He's doing a competent job at the moment. Um, so, no criticism of the kid. He's, he's obviously got the talent to, to risk there. He's got a good car to prove himself at the moment. Um, so, the the lineup, Perez and Stroll, I thought were very good. They kept the attention, uh, kept the pressure and attention away from the team and let the team build up from what they were. just get some good results, which will be a, a solid foundation and a solid motivation for the team, and let them build the team up to what they think they should be. But bringing in Vettel, for me, is a change of pressure. You know, will it work out? It, it may do. Will it? Could it destroy the team? It could do. The thing is that you know, whenever you get somebody that's got lots and lots of money, they don't want to stand back and wait. They don't want to allow that time for the team itself to be the the winning structure that makes that team work. And so they want to go for it as quickly as possible. And that, that's obviously the decision. They think that bringing in Sebastian Vettel, who is a four times world champion and a very, very competent driver, in the right car will bring him the will bring them Aston Martin, as it will be next year, the kudos that they need to be right up at the front and, and get good mileage out of you know, what their product is. They obviously want to use him as well as an Aston Martin um, ambassador of some sort. So that, that's good. That's all good stuff. That's all necessary but at the end of the day for the team, I believe another year, maybe even two years, while you build the team up would would keep the pressure on the team to make sure that they keep making steps forward, but not the pressure from the coming in from the top name driver that should be expected to be at minimum on the podium at, at
0: most events. Well still on the topic of racing point, MRQ uh, asks why the whole rear part of the of the racing point Fell apart when that stroll crashed. And asked whether the weight of today's F1 car contributed to the ripping of the way of the rear section from the from the top. Obviously, a big accident at the second Arabiata in the in the race.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, it does. If you're, if you're going to you know, the barriers and tires and conveyor belt and stuff. There, the distance through the gravel trap um, is. Is the distance that's it's always been for a long time and if the, if the weight of the car has gone up by 130 kilograms or whatever it is you know it's, it's quite a significant amount over the past years um then that's that, that barrier has got to resist that extra 130 kilograms so it's it's a huge percentage bigger impact and something's got to take it And if you saw the back end the gearbox broke off i think the back of the engine or broke the gearbox um Again, it's the same old deal, you know. Everything gets to a level where it, it will fail, and an impact. So the bits that break off, we always used to say, "Well, that's good because the, the, the bit that's left is lighter than the bit that, that started off having the impact." So the next time it has less energy. I think Stroll was very, very lucky in the way it hit; it hit, you know, very flat, very side-on, um, which is obviously why the gearbox broke. Um, but it, you know, it did hit side-on. If it'd gone in there head-on or even backwards, head-on would have been obviously the worst. I think we would have seen a very different set of consequences. So, obviously that sort of area that needs to be looked at a little bit if you do Google from to Modelo, but the weight definitely has a contributing factor to to bigger impact. You know, if you look at MotoGP and they have the, um, they have lots of MotoGP races, but they have, also have their electric bike, and the electric bike racing is, the bike's much heavier. And if you've seen one of the accidents, comparing a MotoGP accident to an electric bike accident, it's horrendous. You know, the bike just goes forever. So, um, yeah, there's a big factor in it.
0: Uh, the next up, we've got a question from Trevor Holster, who asks how the engine mode ban is working. He suggests it seems it made no difference at all. Of course, we've had two weekends of that at Monza and Mugello. So what are your preliminary confusions now we've had a, a couple of circuits?
1: Yeah, I think oh, on face value, we're seeing very, very little difference, to be honest. And, and I, I don't think, personally, I expected to be a big visual difference. It's further down the road. We'll see the differences whether or not, you know, people can keep running the engine modes that they're running at the moment and get the mileage out of these they're like three engines for this year before they have to replace an engine. So it's very easy right now for a team to or an engine manufacturer to run too good a performance from the engine and, and mean that come near the end of the season they may have to take penalties or something. So I'm against penalties of all that sort of stuff, but that's the rules. So I think we have to give the cities have had enough on the uh, enough on the pipeline as a cushion that they're it's not showing up on 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 performance for the grid at all. But um, I think we need to have a lot of of time to see how it unfolds as far as the mileage is concerned and reliability is concerned um, before we make too many um, too many conclusions.
0: Uh, coming back to Sebastian Vettel. Peter Stacey, I think the name is, uh, ask if you can explain why Seb Vettel can't extract the same level of performance from the Ferrari as Leclerc. Surely Seb can see from the telemetry data where he's losing time and learn and adapt. So that's the interesting question is the difficulties of a driver adapting to what their teammates getting out of the car.
1: Yeah, it is. but you can ask that all the way down through the grid. You know, you can ask that of Bottas and Hamilton. You can ask that of Albon and Verstappen. They can see the data and they know with other guys fast um, and yet, still, you know, it comes, push comes to shove, and the, the, the better guy steps up to it. I think in, in battle and the Flurts case, it's, um, it's a little bit more to the fact that you know, Bettel doesn't like the car to feel the way it does. And that's again like Albon and Bassafin. Bassafin can cope with the rear of the car being nervous. He's driving the car, he knows that. He's got confidence that says, right, the rear's nervous, but if I turn in and I do him all my job right, it will hang on. Album thinks the rear of the car's nervous, i better take it a bit easier, you know, whereas um, Verstappen just has that confidence. And I think Leclerc, young and hungry as he is, uh, and obviously with this big opportunity in his life with Ferrari, um, he's willing to sort of drive through onto that. He, he, I think if you saw Leclerc in, uh, in a Red Bull with Verstappen, that might be the best competition that you would see, to be honest, of the, of the pack of the top drivers at the moment. Those two together paired up. I think they might drive the same car. In the same way, Vettel's just still likes the car to be more comfortable to drive. He can drive quick, he takes lots of corner speed, but he's not one of these drivers that sort of has that blind confidence that says, I'll just just hang in here and I'll, I'll, I'll let it happen. I remember way back in Formula 3000 when I ran Roberto Moreno, you know, it was a club corner at Silverstone, a very quick corner. And as Roberto used to say there, you turn into it and you're just... Absolutely sure in your mind the rear is going to give up, but it doesn't. So you know, so you just go past that point of your mind, think, telling you, don't do this. And if you do do it, it actually hangs on because it's just nothing coming from the car it gives you the feeling that it's going to hang on. You think you're going to spin, and, and it doesn't do it. And that's the same sort of deal, you know. The Ferraris a bit like that. The Red Bulls a bit like that at the moment. Um, so you just need to sort of have a driver that's willing to be braver, I suppose, than the sensation the sensation of the feedback coming back
0: from the car uh, we've also got a question from self-confessed formula one superfan Karin chandok here uh, which is about aero he says with cars now being so big with large floor areas there seems to be a trend to trim off downforce as so many corners are now flat and reducing downforce frees up the car to be quicker with less power unit load and steering lock on do you think we're reaching the top end of the benefit of downforce versus drag the
1: top end hat karen by the way Uh, end of downforce versus drag, you know, what you do is you'll you'll plot a curve of your car as far as different levels of downforce is concerned relative to drag. So the efficiency of the car will change as you go through that curve um, from Monza, you know, one end of it, to Monaco, the other end of it. So you'll be putting downforce, you'd you'd put downforce on the car at Monaco, um, let's say one to one. Um, just about one to one downforce to drag level. At, at Monza, you'd be putting downforce on the car four to one, so you have four times the amount of downforce for the drag you're getting from that individual piece of piece of you kit you're putting in the car. So all you do is look through the, the car when you get to a circuit where you don't need maximum downforce. You look through the car and you take away the, the most inefficient parts. So you might say, say, you might say that you know at Mugello. Three to one was a, was a very good ratio. Anything that's worse than three to one, you take off the car, and anything that's better than three to one, you keep on the car. So it doesn't really matter whether it's underfloor downforce or rear wing downforce. You know, it's the most inefficient parts you'll take away. The big thing you got to accept is that downforce to a driver, and Karen will know this, the, 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 the downforce to a driver feels different. You know, it's this confidence in the rear of the car when you brake and turn into the corner. And there's nothing like a rear wing or even the gurney flap on a rear wing to give you that confidence. It's a bit like, it's a small amount of drag, but to the driver feeling, it's like a parachute out the back of the car. It just stabilizes the back of the car. So sometimes on the rear wing, a little bit of drag that's inefficient is actually much, much better than a load more downforce from the underfloor, which doesn't give you that parachute effect that says the rear of the car is going to be stable if I turn it into the corner. And you need that feeling in the, in the car as best you can. And it's like we we're talking there about the Vettel and the and the Leclerc situation. Leclerc lives without that feeling in the back of the car. The Vettel probably needs that feeling in the back of the car. So every different driver is individual. But I think you you, you can't just generalise here. You know. I don't think you can just keep maximising underbody downforce and actually get a feeling that the car is balanced. And again, if you if you take it to the extreme, all the downforce on the car works to a certain point It's called the centre pressure. So there's one point in theory pushing on the car. Now you could have that aerodynamics all very close to that centre of pressure, a huge amount, or you could have it right at the front of the car or right at the back of the car, but the actual force on the car would be in the same place, but the car would feel completely different. It's uh, it's all a package of where the drag is on the car. You know, if you put a gurney flap in the rear wing, that little bit of drag that, that's less efficient than something on the underfloor, but it's high up, it's a long way back, and it feels like a parachute. So there's differences in in how the what you're putting in the car reacts, rather than just the efficiency of that individual component. Sorry, that was a bit convoluted and long. Aerodynamics is not easy.
0: Yeah, well, it's a it's a complicated question, uh, isn't it? Uh, there's a general question about technical directors from Hannes, who says, "What is the skill set of a technical director compared to a normal engineer working in F1?" Well, you did you did both jobs uh, in Formula One. The technical director just takes the credit and and gets the big paycheck, don't they?
1: Yes, and rightly so. Now, uh, you know, it's changed dramatically over the years since I started. And, uh, you know, you, a technical director, and the next thing I would separate at the minute, we've got engineering directors and um, man, technical management and all sorts of different names for it. But I, I classify it as a, as a technical team gets bigger you become more of a technical manager than a technical director. And at the beginning, there wasn't really a technical director. You were sort of chief designer because, you know, when I started at Jordan, there were three of us. We all designed bits of the car. Um, so we were all designers, but I I sort of called the shop for Yeah, Andrew Green and Mark Smith, two very, very capable guys. Loved working with them. Great engineers. But, you know, at the end of the day, somebody needs somebody to call the shop. Andrew Green is in the same position as such at at the racing point now. Um, But the team's grown so big that he's, you know, he's not sitting there drawing stuff anymore. He's managing it. He's seeing other people's input and trying to sort out what's the best direction to keep taking. Um, So the responsibility stays the same. The handles have just changed and the handles have changed because the team has got much, much bigger, much more people.
0: And it's interesting that uh, that point you make about how it's changed in terms of structure. So I guess when uh, when you started, say, with Brabham or when you went to to McLaren, obviously you had you were chief mechanic at McLaren, weren't you, uh, in uh, the 70s. So how did the hierarchy work there? Who, were the, who was the senior technical figure and who kind of kept an eye on what you were doing? Or was it just literally su- such a small thing that everyone just knew their jobs and cracked on?
1: Um, yeah, every sort of slot into their own position. I mean, we had Alistair Caldwell, who was the... The team manager, I think you might call it, um, Teddy Mayer sort of owned the team. He was he was the big boss. Yeah, we had Oliver uh, Cole was team manager. He organised, hired, and fired all the people. Um, and then in the technical side, uh, Gordon Coplop was the was the chief designer. So that was the hierarchy. I, I was chief mechanic so the, the, the guys. The mechanics sort of I made sure they were doing the job they needed to do. Alistair made sure. I was doing my job and made sure that we knew when we were going somewhere or, you know, whatever. Um, he would run one car um, at a race meeting um, and Teddy Mayor would run the other car at a race meeting. So I used to work with Teddy because Teddy would tend to get a little bit out of control. So I was trying to keep Teddy in control all the time. And, um, and Gordon wouldn't come to all the races. He would you know, he'd, he'd be at some of the races, but he was there as a, you know, more of a, an advisor from the on the technical side and more with the engineers to try and get the best out of the car. So structures have changed so dramatically They're so huge now. You know, you didn't have any of this data going back to the factory and 25 people sitting there analysing it and sending you back the best setup solution. Do you want to try a step front some spring? you Try a step front spring. You just took the other ones off and put a new one on. So, you know, you have to get through all the rigmarole and all the work. Um, so it was a very, very different time.
0: And, and there was a second part of that question, which is what the difference is between a chief designer and technical director. The chief designer job title actually has changed quite a lot in the past 20, 30 years, hasn't it? Yes.
1: Yes, it has. The chief designer, you know, again, whenever, as I say, whenever we started Jordan, uh, we didn't have a technical director as such. We had a chief designer, and that was a sort of same role. But that's just the guy that calls shots as far as the what the design of the car is going to be like. It's very like the technical director. So it all, it all blurs into the same sort of position. At the moment, you've got, you know, such huge technical... Design departments now, they're all separate into mechanical design or hydraulic design or aerodynamic design or fluid design or, you know, engine installation, composite design. It's just massive amount of different departments. And all of those will have what you call a, 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 a chief. You know, you'll have chief aerodynamics and chief designer. And they'll all be allocated to those groups of people. So each chief designer, like in the past, each chief designer will have three, four, five, six people working with them. Um, I wouldn't say the words for him, but with him, in trying to come up with a you know let's say a suspension package. Um, but he'd lead he'd he'd lead that little group, and then there'll be a group further up the scale, and he would attend meetings with that group further up the scale, and at the end of the day, it'll get to the technical director as well. Um, that those groups will just build up to get to the technical director, bringing all the stuff that, that 200 plus people can generate, create. Think about invent, whatever you like to call it. But you know, you can't have one person sitting with two hundred others. You have to separate it into you know maybe groups of ten. Anything above ten, I think gets pretty inefficient. So you want to have a leader of a group of ten, and that he would be called the chief of that group, whether it be hydraulics or aerodynamics, or as I say, fluid dynamics, or or uh, mechanical design. And then you know again, there's there's ten of those groups, and they'll meet up with the technical direction. So it's a it's a fir tree sort of thing. You know cut from the top down in all the areas of the company um and again the technical director will be responsible to the to the owner you know so it's it's, it's a fur tree you, you can't have this the and pride this flat organization I mean, you have 40 50 60 people all trying to really run the show because everybody has best interests you've got to try and filter out the best then and that's what that's what makes a, a good
0: team work well well thanks very much gary for interrupting your your holiday we could hear a bit of bird song in the background and occasional uh, dog interruption but uh, uh, apologies to listeners to the fact there'll be a slightly lower uh, audio quality this week but it's uh, still well worth hearing what Gary has to say so as I said we'll be back next week with more from Gary who will not be on holiday